The reading today is John 13, 31 through 38. And it's on page 900 in your pew Bible. While you're turning there, let's remember together where we are. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room, and Jesus has announced that one of them will betray him. Judas has just left. So John 13, 31 to 38. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For those of you who don't know, that was Susan Sisk, and she teaches the Women's Bible Study on Wednesday evenings. And the Women's Bible Study is going to be having an open house that you'll hear more about, but that's a great ministry that we have here in the church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your loving kindness to us. It's better than life. We pray, Father, that you would stimulate us through your scriptures to know how we are called between Sundays to walk for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in this series on the, uh, the last days, the last hours that Jesus has with his disciples. It's called, a fancy term for it is called the upper room discourse. John 13 through John 17. Uh, it's the last things that Jesus has to say. And I was thinking about last words um, this week in that regard. Uh, I was talking some with my wife about that. One of the th first set of last words, because I was a history major in college, I thought about this, were the last words of Nathan Hale. Do you remember who Nathan Hale was? He was a, a Revolutionary War spy for the Americans, trying to help George Washington know what was going on in New York City. He was captured by the Brits, and the Brits not only tried him, but they tried him in one day and they hung him the next day. And, uh, but his famous last words are something which we've heard in our history classes over the years. I regret that I only have one life to lose for my country. Great words of pathos and, and patriotism. But then there's also been last words that people have spoke that have been humorous. I think of the British poet Oscar Wilde who said, just before he died, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us must go. And it was wild. <laughs> or I think of, of expressions of faith as a last word. There was a famous blues singer named Jessie Smith. And what she said was, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. And uh, I really appreciate that. And, and here we see this as, as Susan was saying that Judas is now left and Jesus is sharing his last words 
with his disciples. What I want us to do is this morning first do again kind of an overview of verses 31 to 38. And then after doing an overview of that, I want us to bear down on his commandment that he gave to his disciples. Now, we, we see that Jesus has left the upper room, Judas has left the upper room, and, and the betrayal is on the way. Jesus, in the first section, verses 31 through 33, exp expresses to his disciples at the very beginning three certainties. The first thing he says, he says that God is glorified in him, that what is going to be taking place is not something which is haphazard or weird or strange, but rather God Almighty is now going to be glorified through him, his son, through Jesus. The second thing he stresses, and it's kind of hard to get this in verse 32. I've read a number of commentaries, and they basically say that what Jesus is, he says here is that God will glorify Christ in himself through the resurrection. And after that, uh, that's going to follow the crucifixion. So in essence, what he's saying in verse 32 is God is going to glorify himself. That is, God the Father is going to glorify himself in Jesus, and he's going to do it at once, immediately, and that is through the crucifixion and the resurrection. The third thing he says to, to the disciples is that God will do this without delay. That is, the time is at hand. Right now is the time this is going to take place. I'm not talking about something in the future. It is this time. Now, in the midst of prepping the disciples for what's coming in the next few hours, Jesus then says to them, little children, which is a beautiful thing in a very real sense. These are words of affection. Jesus loves and cares for his disciples, and he wants to express that to them. But he also expresses to them the fact that they cannot follow after him. They cannot take the next steps with him. It's something that he is going to be taking. So that's the first couple of verses as he begins these last words to the disciples. Part two are verses 34 and 35, which is Jesus' new commandment to the disciples. It's interesting, if you look at the Gospel of John, the primary focus of verses 13 through 17 with all that Jesus is saying, the primary focus is love. Up to this point, John in his gospel has used the noun for love only once. And he's used the verb seven times up before uh, chapter 13 at this point. But now from this point on through these four chapters, he uses the noun love six times and the corresponding verb 24 times. Jesus is making it plain that love is of first importance. Now, we know from the passage we read this morning that, that, uh, that Spencer read to us that, that Leviticus 19 verse 18 was always very much on Jesus' mind. Three different times Jesus talked either directly to someone who asked him, oh, what do I do to gain eternal life? Or he responds to, like we saw this morning, this lawyer who responded. And the, the two phrases that are given is the Shema, you, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But then Leviticus 19.18, where God commanded that God's people should love their neighbor. You should love your neighbor as yourself. 
But the commandment that Jesus gives this morning in, in this passage is new, not that love is, in, is, is a new thing, but that Jesus commands Christians to love one another as he loved us. Just as I have loved you is what makes this commandment new. Interestingly enough, just after Jesus says this, we see that he's going to be speaking with Peter. But as we hear the commandment to love, we've got to remember the fact that he's giving the command to the disciples who in this same upper room have just been quarreling with each other about who'd be the greatest. We saw that in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. But in the midst of that quarrel, Jesus says to them, I'm giving you this command to love one another, and the, the model for that, the example for that, is the way that I have loved you. The last section, verses 36 to 38, is the, the section which reflects Peter's denial. We looked at that fairly extensively last week. But the thing I want to just focus us on this morning is the fact that Jesus has just given the command to love one another. And what does Simon Peter do? He jumps over what Jesus says about love and goes back to what Jesus says about the fact that you can't follow me. He focuses on the fact that he can't follow Jesus, and Jesus has to respond to Peter by forcing him to face the brutal facts of his own failure to love and about his upcoming denial. But don't miss the fact that, that Peter, after hearing God say, love one another, slides over that and says, what is it going to take for me to be with you? I want us to reflect upon that for a minute because I am like Peter. How often do I skip over the command to love? I just take it for granted. How often do I take Christ's love and his, com his command to me to love others like Peter did? Just taking it for granted and passing over to what I think is more important. And yet Jesus said, this is the new commandment that I give to all of you, that you are to love one another. What are the implications of that command? We can't just slip away and think, oh, you know, all we need is love, and love is just a wonderful ooey-gooey kind of a thing. What, is, what are the implications of what Jesus is saying here to you and I individually and as a congregation in this community? You see, CGS shares a passion with all the many churches in our community that name the name of Jesus Christ. We have this passion to see the good news of Jesus impact Durham and Chapel Hill. I know of one church that, that uses a motto that says, we're in Durham for Durham. I know of other churches that extend all kinds of promises about how their worship service or their activities are going to change the community. And all that's well and good. But none of our activities and none of our mottos and none of our visions will come close to the impact on our community like these two verses that Jesus shares in verse 34 and 35. 
a book that had a huge impact upon me back in my days of college, but has continued to have an impact upon me, was a little book by a guy named Francis Schaeffer. And that name, for some of you, rings a lot of bells. Others of you have never heard of Francis Schaeffer before. But he is a person who had a, a, a huge impact upon the Church of Christ in the 70s, 80s, and 90s into, into, the new, uh, into the 2000s. And Schaeffer wrote this little book called The Mark of the Christian. And in this book, he focuses on these two verses, John 13, 34, and 35. He calls these verses the final apologetic of the gospel. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean by apologetic, apologetic of the gospel? Some of us know that word. It's a theological word. It's not saying you're apologizing for Jesus. What Schaefer meant by the final apologetic of the gospel, the word apologetic means how to give an explanation of the gospel, how the gospel shares answers to the questions of life, what will convince someone who is not a follower of Christ that the gospel is true. That's what apologetic means. How do you convince somebody that the gospel is true? And Schaefer says, verses 34 and 35, is the ultimate, the final explanation to the unbeliever that the gospel is true. What is that? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, this is a different kind of love. It's natural for us to find those that we love attractive. It's natural for us to love our family members and our kids. The world does this all the time. This is a different kind of love. Loving the way that Jesus has loved us. And what we need to see first in this is that Jesus commands us to love our fellow Christians, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And this isn't always easy. Sometimes you find at Christmas time it's hard enough to love your own family. But to love your brothers and sisters is a challenge. And the other thing that, that Schaefer says is that this love is the mark of the Christian. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here's the deal. There are folks here this morning who are not followers of Christ. There are thousands of people in Durham and Chapel Hill that are not followers of Christ. And the point that Jesus is making here is it's possible for a person to be a Christian and not love other Christians. But if we expect the non-Christian, those who are with us this morning, those who we will associate with this coming week, if we expect non-Christians to know that we are Christians, we must visibly demonstrate that love before them to other Christians. Now, while we hold that up, we must never forget the other side of Jesus' teaching that we've already stressed here, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. All people, all human beings, have value because they're made in the image of God. We're not to choose between loving 
all persons as ourselves and loving the Christian in some other special way. These two commandments reinforce each other. As the Samaritan loved the wounded man that we read this morning, we as Christians are called to love all persons as our neighbors, loving them as ourselves. But the thrust of this passage is that the world will know that we are saved. The world will know that we are Jesus' disciples by the way that we visibly love other Christians. Now, Jesus is not saying, I want to reinforce this, Jesus is not saying that our failure to love all Christians proves that we are not Christians. Okay? Our failure does not say we are not Christians, but what he is saying is that if we do not have a demonstrable love for other Christians, the world has a right to draw the conclusion that I'm not a Christian. Do you catch the difference? doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It may be a wrong conclusion, but it's a conclusion that they come to by watching the way Christians treat one another. We can't expect the world, and to be specific, we can't expect our neighbors and our friends here in Durham and Chapel Hill to believe that the Father sent the Son or that Jesus' claims are true or that Christianity is true unless they see the love that Christians have for one another. Now, the problem here is we all fail. And how are we going to respond to our failure? No one but Jesus himself has ever lived and not failed for this command. If success in love towards all Christians were the standard of whether or not we are a Christian, there would be no Christians at all. Because all of us have failed. But how are we to respond to that? What does this love look like? When we fail at demonstrating this visible love, how do we respond? I'd suggest that this visible love to a watching world includes people who repent to one another. When I have failed to love my Christian brother or sister, I go to them and I say, I was wrong. Please forgive me. Or when a brother or sister has wronged us, this visible love in, involves having a forgiving spirit before the other person initiates repentance. We pray the Lord's Prayer this morning. And in the Lord's Prayer we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus calls us to have a forgiving spirit, a loving spirit, without the other person even having to make the first step. This is what we are called to demonstrate to the watching world. Now, that doesn't mean, as we love one another, that we are required always to agree with one another. As a matter of fact, there are times when we are required to differ with each other and with other believers in Christ. These, these differences can be doctrinal differences. That's why we have Baptists and we have Anglicans. and we have, that's, that's why you have different denominations because there are different doctrinal differences that people feel are critically important. There are differences in the way we do worship. 
There are differences in the way people lead and respond to leadership. There are differences in perspectives on politics, on parenting, on all kinds of things. But we should never come to such differences with true Christians without a sense of being willing to listen to one another, to seek to understand one another, and when those differences cause us to say we have to do things differently, that should not be done with arrogance and with fists up in the air and with criticism and sarcasm. It is to be done with tears and with regret. And the more serious differences become, the more important it is for us to look to the Holy Spirit to help us show love with the Christians with whom we must differ. We can't expect the world itself to manage differences well. But if they see observable love between Christians who have differences... This opens up a way for them to consider the truth of Christianity. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. I had the privilege of growing up at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, with the pastor Richard C. Halverson. At that time, Fourth Pres was in the mainline Presbyterian denomination. And I didn't know any better, and I was growing up in there, and I, and, and I went to seminary, and part of the time I was in seminary was at Princeton Seminary, the, one of the denomination's seminaries. And I came to a point in my own walk with Christ and my own conclusion that, that I could not continue at Princeton Seminary, the alma mater of my pastor. Not only that, I came to the point of realizing that I, I would not be able to continue seeking ordination in that denomination for various different reasons. And I, I had to go to my pastor and from him to the session and acknowledge the fact that I was not going to be able to continue at Princeton Seminary where they were supporting me financially to go. And I would not be able to continue pursuing ordination in that denomination. And I had tears because I love this church and I love my pastor. And I came to him, and I'll never forget coming to his office and sharing those things with him and telling him how hard it was for me to share it. You know what his response was? He said, Bob, you're my brother in Christ. This doesn't make a bit of difference to me as far as where you go to seminary or where you pursue ordination, that's a choice you get to make. I support you. And you're a son of this church, and we're going to continue to support you in what you're doing. The visible love of true Christian brothers in the midst of differences a pastor named David Bowen started this church. When he was getting ready to start this Presbyterian church with a different set of perspectives and a different set of views, our brothers and sisters over at the Bible church, Chapel Hill Bible Church, 
and the senior pastor invited him to come and preach in their church and share the fact that he was going to be starting a new Presbyterian church. And there's some major differences between the, the positions doctrinally and, the, and, and, and some of the, 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 the ministry activities and, and philosophy between the Bible church and this church. And yet that church opened up their arms and said, we love you and we want to support you as you start this church. What about problematic situations? Over the last five years and beyond that, but particularly over the last five years, there's been many, many public declarations and understandings of spiritual abuse. I've got a good friend, Michael Coggin, who's just written his, he's a Christian therapist, who's just written his second book on the, the problem of spiritual abuse in the context of the church. The outside world sees this and hears about these things. They hear about denominational leaders who have utilized the money of their congregations. They hear about sexual immorality that's been done in the context of the church environment. Now, how's the outside world going to respond to that? The church is responsible to respond to that kind of abuse with discipline and declare the sin and to deal with the individuals who dealt with that, but they're responsible to discipline with love, not with harshness and bitterness of spirit. We're getting ready to, dangerous, dangerous, red lights. We're getting ready to go into a political season. We're there already. Brothers and sisters in Christ can have different perspectives and viewpoints on political agendas. But they cannot fail to demonstrate observable love to one another. And I am embarrassed at how the term evangelical has been used in public consumption as assuming it's one particular political position and persuasion. The word evangelical means people who are followers of Jesus and are called to love one another even when they disagree and not to throw one another out or to split churches if you don't have a mask on or not. The outside world has the privilege and the right to look at that kind of stuff and say whether or not, in their opinion, those people are Christians. And we are called to demonstrate the observable love of Christ to brothers and sisters whom we have all kinds of differences. Because this is what Jesus says is the way that the world will know that you are my disciples. Brothers and sisters, this is not, like I said before, ooey-gooey, squishy, all you need is love. No. I was reading this morning in the gospel, in Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus went into the temple and threw over the tables where he confronted people who talked to him about these people who are, these, these children who are coming and declare. He said, if these children aren't allowed to declare this, the stones will cry out. He offended them. In this passage we read this morning, Jesus, when Peter was trying to 
move in a different direction away from the, the requirement of love and say, why can't I be with you? Jesus addressed him directly and said, you will deny me three times before the cock crows tonight. Now, is that considered love? Yes. That is observable love, and the attitude that is taken in the midst of that, the attitude that Peter felt when Jesus said that, whatever that attitude was, Peter stayed with the disciples, and he jumped into the water to find Jesus after the resurrection. He jumped into the water after they were fishing to go to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we are called before a watching world. If you are not a follower of Christ this morning and you are here, we are grateful, as Spencer said, that you're here. And our prayer is that you will see among us the kind of observable love that Christ demonstrated on the cross because he said, I've call, you're called to love one another as I have loved you. Jesus brought me to himself in the late 60s, just before the Jesus revolution hit. But during that time, we used to sing a song, and I know it's been sung in this church. We're one in the spirit. And the chorus goes, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. It's easier to sing it than to do it. But by God's grace, we must do it if the world is going to know that we are Christians. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your grace, you would give us the capacity to know what it means to love as Jesus loved. We pray that you will give us the capacity to differ with one another in love, to ask hard questions to one another in love, even, Lord, to do church discipline, holding one another accountable but done in love and tears and compassion. Lord, teach us how to repent. Teach us how to care for one another. And Lord, not just individually, Lord, teach us as a church to know how to love in this community and how to love our brothers and sisters in other churches. And Lord, teach us together as the body of Christ in Durham and Chapel Hill to love one another in such a way that the watching world here will know that we are followers of you. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We're desperately in need for your grace and for your mercy. And we pray that you would do this, Lord, in us individually, in our families, in our community groups, and in our congregation so that the world will know that we are Christians by our love. We pray this in your name. Amen.